I'm Charles Stanton. I'm on the faculty of the Honors College at UNLV and the Boyd School of Law. I'm Lana Weatherald. I'm a third-year law student. And welcome to Social Justice. Social Justice, a conversation. A conversation. Good evening, everybody, and happy Thanksgiving. I hope you're having a wonderful evening with your family and that you're cozied up by the fire, and if not watching football, that you're interested in having a half-hour conversation with us tonight. We're going to open tonight with some news, again, horrible news, out of Colorado. So there it was a uh, horrific shooting in Colorado Springs at a uh, club predominantly catering to LGBTQ and LGBTQ members of the community where five people were brutally shot. Obviously, you know, this is one of several, many reoccurring stories that we hear in this country constantly. But it, it hits a little closer to home when it's a member of a marginalized community or members of a marginalized community like was in this case. Um, so I'm going to have the professor open up with a little bit of sentiments about what happened in Colorado. Oh, thank you, Lana. Yes. Uh, well, this is not, as my uh, partner and co-host said, something new. It is a problem you, well, you have two problems, basically, uh, coalescing. One problem is the prejudice against the LGBT community, which unfortunately many times manifests itself in violence. And then you also have the question of weaponry and how people who, in many cases, are mentally disturbed still have weaponry that the police and law enforcement know about, but for whatever reason decide not to enforce the red flag laws in, in various states. It, it, it's, clearly, it's clearly apparent to me that going beyond the, the question of, of LGBT rights and you know this particular case, that there needs to be a reappraisal of gun ownership rights and the ability, the kind of weapons that people can possess in this country. I think that the idea that people can walk around with high-powered weapons is an idea that's, that is very harmful to our society. It's led to thousands and thousands of innocent people being killed. And I think there is a safe, sane gun possession approach that could be reached if people have the willingness to engage in those conversations. I think that the mistake that's been made, and I think it's been the mistake of you know, many decades, is uh, the way the people who are against gun misuse drafted their campaign and they've created, a, in, in, in some sense, a uh, idea that uh, it's take your guns away and you can't have a gun and all the rest of this stuff. And it feeds on a kind of hysteria when actually um, what really needs to be done is to basically set out a foundation as to what, what weapons would be uh, feasible and proper for people to have and, and what weapons would be societally harmful and, and, and you can't have them. And I think there need to be you know, nationwide background checks. There's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be done. But I think it's also, it's also an issue on a state level, like in the state of Texas, where someone cannot buy a handgun until they're 21, but they can buy an assault weapon when they're 18. So these are, these are legislative matters. And as long as the Congress seems to be controlled by the gun lobby, it doesn't seem that much is happening or, or will happen. I wouldn't say that the professor and I disagree on this issue, but I believe that the real reason that this shooting occurred because of the vitriol and sort of the rhetoric and sort of the increase in anti-LGBTQ sentiment that has been espoused by the Republican Party mm -hmm. in particular lately 
it seems like that has become more and more of a sticking point, of a talking point, of a sort of a fear-stoking tactic coming out of, um, you know, the right-wing side is your kids are going to be taken by these drag queens and they're going to be taken and made to be homosexuals and they're teaching your kids to be these scary little gay. Yeah, they're going to transform your kids into these like nefarious characters and that that very much is the sentiment surrounding um, a lot of a lot of gay people right now and sick as it is. I, I believe that this attack would have happened somewhere else in some other way, in some mm. other form. This attack on gay people would have happened, you know, regardless of the the guns. Do you know? mm. Um, mm. So obviously, you know, I agree with the professor in that gun control is necessary. And if not the most important legislative issue our country is facing today, one of the most important legislative issues our country is facing today. However, this particular incident, you know, the fact that it was in a gay club and they were all gay people, you know, lesbian mm. or gay identifying mm. victims, it shows you what this was about. You know, I think that this was a direct result of the kind of rhetoric that is being espoused daily by the right, uh, where gay people are concerned. Um, Mm. And I think so much of this could be solved by just, you know, one leader in the Republican Party saying that I don't believe Mm. that this is what's really going on in the Mm. gay community. I don't believe the LGBTQ folks are out to, you know, come and saddle up your children and make them all gay. But alas, that's not, you know, so I, I think so much of this obviously is the guns, but is still the rhetoric, too. Yeah, I think, well, I think certainly the Republican Party has uh, made this a major issue. Right. It's drag queen story yeah. hour. Do you want your kids to have drag queen story hour yeah. instead of the hungry caterpillar? It's like yeah. none of this is real. None yeah. of this is happening. This yeah. is not <laughs> just yeah. silly. Yeah. And of course, the thing is now where a lot of the people who believe this have taken over school boards yes. in various states. So it's very hard if you're put in the position of a teacher or an academic trying to teach children in a responsible way. And of course, that also ties into critical race theory. It's a whole, mm-hmm. it's a whole bunch of issues that they're running on. But the, the, the main focus of their, their campaign is basically to keep people ignorant. Yeah. I mean, what, that's pretty much at the heart of it. I think that uh, it is, as uh, Lana said, you know, it is kind of astounding that there's like very few voices in a, in a party that had the log cabin society, right. and right. you don't hear from any of these people. I I I don't uh, I don't get it except to say that they have a, they have a, a a willing audience. Yep, they have a bunch of people who believe in a whole range of. of ideas across the board. Right. They see society changing and the Republican Party is willing and able to provide the stoke to the fire of fear. And if, you know, they are willing to put the onus on drag queens for Mm. causing change within society or add, you know, at other racial or Mm. socioeconomic, whatever it may be, not just LGBTQ rhetoric to sort of stoke fear, they will do that. And that's why the world is changing. Never mind. It's bad, you know, bad policy. No, no, no. It's the others. It's other people. It's, yeah, yeah, instead of looking at the own politicians that are causing the strife, it's um, to look at your neighbors, which is just sad. Yeah, no, it, 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 it is sad. I think somebody said the other day that the two most important principles or institutions that a society needs to have to be democratic is one, the right to vote, and then secondly, that the institutions of justice, the courts, are perceived by people to be to be fair. So that segues into the new scandal, if you want to use that word, with the Supreme Court, where basically 
a man who was involved in, in a litigation, who was a member of, the, who was a, a minister actually, uh, disclosed that the uh, Hobby Lobby case, which, which involved uh, the Supreme Court saying that religious institutions did not have to provide insurance for contraception, that the, uh, the decision was leaked. And that more than, more than just the, the, more than just the decision was leaked, but that the conservative uh, religious right had a whole game plan as to how to influence judges to vote their way, including, including intermingling with the judges at dinner, uh, inviting them to their homes, doing all kinds of stuff that really stretched the boundaries of what is acceptable and should be seen by judges who supposedly want to avoid any sign of impropriety, uh, very serious. And what's interesting about the Supreme Court in particular is that it doesn't seem to have any ethical rules, unlike the rest no. of the federal courts. So you have people basically who, in numerous cases, are hearing cases where family members actually may be involved or litigants, and they're going right ahead and hearing the case. Uh, Clarence Thomas's Wife being wife, one of them. Yeah, being one of them. And apparently, from what this, the, the minister said, this is not an uncommon thing. So when you have, when you have judges who are, are going to different institutions like the Federalist Society and places like that and making speeches, it obviously uh, weakens the, the belief that people have that the court, even though we all have our private prejudices, approaches some of these major issues in an impartial or try to be impartial way because stuff like that you really can't be doing. It's really interesting, you know, I was thinking about University of Notre Dame, how they've had so many speaking uh, appearances from the most right conservative justices, but they never seem to get around to talking to Eleanor Kagan or Sonia <laughs> Sotomayor. Right. They never seem to be on the, on the speaker's list. And... Uh, I think I think that's I think that's disturbing and and a problem and I think it's also disturbing that you know in the case of Clarence Thomas and his wife that you wouldn't inherently if you ha if your husband or wife is the case when you run the court that you would not be getting involved in any issues regarding you know whether the election was a hoax or <laughs> only arrest this stuff for for rather obvious Obvi ethical yeah. region ethical reasons you know yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, the Supreme Court deciding that contraception is not, that family and corporations aren't required, you know, to provide insurance for something like that. I want to be very, very clear about a, what what position needs to be taken here and what's right and what's wrong here. Um, the right for a woman to treat her endometriosis, the right for a woman to save her life in, in regards to, you know, beyond reproductive justice. Um, in, into, quite frankly, her own health. Um, birth control is beyond a contraceptive. Birth control is women's health. Birth control is, is taking care of issues and has taken care of issues beyond just contraception. I think that needs to be perfectly clear. That has nothing to do with religion. Mm -hmm. Keeping women out of the hospital, keeping women from having ruptured ovarian cysts, keeping women from having horrible complications with future or past, you know, pregnancies, that's that's nothing to do with religious rights and mm -hmm. everything to do with with health and, with, and, and keeping women alive. And I, I just um, it's just a dark day. It's just a dark day to be a woman in America. And if the Dobbs decision wasn't enough, you know, here's some more for you. Yeah, um, yeah I, 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 I completely agree with that. I've said before, you know, many times as far as the abortion issue was concerned that it's the woman's right to choose because it's the woman's body. 
she has to decide. She has to decide what she wants to do with her life. Well, yeah, and I think I think you know I it should even be careful because contraception is is should be kept so separate in a way um, from the abortion conversation because contraception is is life-saving for a lot of women. I mean, if a lot of women suffer from severe endometriosis or severe ovarian cysts or have severe periods that are debilitating, birth control is a life-saving option and has nothing to do with pregnancy and has nothing to do with, you know, the right to choose or the right to life or choosing life. It has nothing to do with that and everything to do with health. Um, so I think it, it is important to keep those comp- those conversations separate and distinct um, because contraception goes, goes way beyond just the right to choose and mm-hmm. goes I mean, that is a fundamental necessity to keep many women alive, you know, separate and away from a baby. Well, and 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 then, of course, the other issue is the right to privacy. Yes. Seems to be being eradicated, too. And it's interesting because with you have the contrast on the one hand with with social media and the Internet, where there seems to be very little privacy for anybody. And yet in this most important personal Choices. Intimate decision that a person uh, has to make. We're going to regulate that, but let everybody else do every, whatever they want and all the other issues, and and basically tell you know fifty three percent of the fifty three percent of the population what what is permissible. I think that the I think that the elections proved that the majority of the people in the country don't believe that. I think the majority of the country believe that it is it is a personal decision. And I think that one of the dangers we're seeing with the court is the court seems to be out of step with what most people want to do. And that's that's dangerous because at a certain point, it affects not just the credibility of the court, but just whole, people's whole view of what the law is right. and how the law is administered, you know? Absolutely. So, so, so we can bounce off from that to talking about the new special counsel for the um, investigation of the ex-president. Uh, has a, a sterling resume both as a litigator and also as a person who uh, has been involved in prosecuting war criminals in The Hague for a number of years. I, I find it interesting, of course, that regardless of his, his many talents, and, and, and he seems to be a, a, a person of integrity. I, I, I could say nothing else from what I, what I know about him, but that with all the people that work for the Justice Department throughout the country, the thousands and thousands that they have to bring somebody in from overseas to do this investigation. And I, I, we've seen this pattern happen before where because of politics, the incestuous nature of politics in our country, that in the uh, you know investigation of women's soccer where they had to get Sally Yates and, and when they had the investigation of the NFL when the, uh, Ray Rice assaulted the, the woman in the elevator, you know, it really, it really is kind of, it really is kind of sad that we don't have a, a neutral third party. And a, a neutral third party. Yeah, I think um, hard to expect. You know, I know plenty of people that work within the DOJ, and there's just there's no way to avoid water cooler. There's no way to avoid this sort of gossip that's inherent to holding a position, even at the lowest level in the mm. Department of Justice. Everybody's got an opinion, and I think it's hard with what has been going on in the past. We'll go six to seven years, you know, on the ground in the Department of Justice. I think it's hard to not have an opinion about mm. any of that, and mm. to um, hold any sort of bias at all. I think would be natural in the kind mm. of situations where you're seeing unprecedented things. So I'm not surprised. 
lost. I'm not surprised that Jack Smith brought, you know, was bought. I do agree with you that it's sad in some way, but at the end of the day, I think what was going on for so long was just so sort of inconceivable. Mm. Um, and with the DOJ and the decisions that people in higher up levels of the Department of Justice mm. had to make, I think was so inconceivable that there was nobody that, you know, even at the lowest level you could bring in and trust wholeheartedly. Mm. So I don't, I don't hate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think he, I, I think he, from his background, he seems to be a person who will of integrity. Of integrity, yeah, he of integrity. will do. He will do what he, you know, he thinks is right. But but I think it is a. Uh, I think it was. It, it is a case that is one of the most important cases that possibly has ever been brought before the Department of Justice. Yep. Uh, you know, in listening to Neil Katyal last Friday night, and uh, also listening to Andrew Weissman today, both of whom have long backgrounds in the Justice Department. The credibility, the credibility of our system of justice, which is already pretty shaky with racism, sexism, and a whole bunch of other things, is really in a precarious state, mm -hmm. especially, especially in a case of the documents at Mar-a-Lago, where basically every single person who was involved in a similar situation received, received substantial jail time. And there were and there was basically open and shut cases. Uh, one woman actually who was sentenced to a number of years in prison for having one document in her house. And you have a situation here where, where you have literally documents all over the Dozens, house and right. in, in the in the desk everywhere. And then and not just not just uh, where a person could be under a mistaken assumption that they they could have them. When there were repeated uh, attempts. attempts from the, uh, the 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 archives and all these people to get to get the stuff returned, and uh, it wasn't returned, and then you know, I mean, at a certain point, at a certain point, you have to have some accountability here, especially in something where some of these documents may involve uh, secrets that are that are, are harmful to our country, uh, certainly, and and and. and Instead of, you know, basically saying, well, everybody does it or, or these things happen, say, well, you know, a person who takes the oath of office, their job is to uphold the laws of the country ultimately. That's their ultimate job. And if, 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 if you make a joke out of it or you say, well, it's, a, it's you know, the people are persecuting me or everything, the law in this case is very clear. There's no, there, there's no ambiguity in it. There's no ambiguity in it, you know. You were gonna you were gonna talk a little bit about we we had, we had conversed previously about the the, the brutality case in Georgia, which um, yeah you know when you see um, prison assaults generally or you see sort of um, guards taking advantage or you see sort of just and this is something that's on the ground all across America right so Jared Hobbs the particular case I'm talking about in Georgia is just a I think an encapsulation or a microcosm of a much larger issue right on the ground in America the prison systems tend to fail and been, are incapable of rehabilitating in, in the ways we would hope so it, it sort of calls into question you know what what are we doing here if this is a cyclical problem that we've been experiencing on the ground in American prisons corporate owned or not corporate owned for many, many years. What do we do? How do we stop this? And I think the professor and I are just talking about perhaps there just comes a point where we un we have to understand that this is the nature of what we're doing when you put human beings in cages. Mm -hmm. And um, there's always going to be a power structure or an inherent hierarchy of power 
to, to those things and to prison systems. So, you know, I, w- I was remarking to the professor how even the most successful or, you know, most rehabilitative or proven to be the most rehabilitative prison centers in the world. So these are facilities in the Netherlands, these in Sweden, some more developed European countries. You could imagine that there's still a level of power disparity there. There's still mm. a level of um, an understanding that the prisoners or the people that are held there are beneath, whether that be mm. even the clinical psychologist or the guards or the check-in or the re- there's there's a level of power disparity no matter how fancy the cage is, mm. no matter how nice the people running the cage are, the cage is the cage. Mm. So I think, you know, we're always going to see prison assaults. We are always going to see brutality and misdeeds and nefarious characters and and power wielded, unfortunately, or power wielded um, in a way that is, you know, completely inappropriate so long as we are putting other humans in cages. And, you know, my solution isn't a better one. I say if the crime's serious enough, shoot them. And if not, you got to send them to therapy. I don't think that's exactly an um, <laughs> agreeable solution to the rest of the world is shoot them or therapy. But, I mean, the prison system has proven time and time again that it doesn't really work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. You know, as I was, as I was watching this on Sunday, uh, I was thinking of a, one of the films that we had been discussing, uh, Fruitvale Station. And what's interesting to me is, you know, just like the over-response of, of the, the prison guards and, 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 of course, Fruitvale Station, the police, violating really all the basic principles of law enforcement where you just use necessary force. And it's interesting how this excessive force, why is the excessive force, why is deadly force always the option that they use against people. I mean, so, you know, you know I, I, I don't have a very favorable view of the vast majority of those that are involved in law enforcement because I believe at their core they are not people that are there to serve and protect. They are there to, you know, commission their positions of power against mm-hmm. those that they believe to be weaker than them. And that's, I think, just the fundamental problem is uh, we don't have a police force full of really well-educated, well-to-do, going to, I'm going to try to mince words here. I'm going to try to, you know, keep it careful, but I do not believe our police force is filled with the best and brightest that this country has to offer, nor has it ever been. Uh, So, of course, um, when they're finally a lot of these men, um, I'm going to go vast majority men, but women too. Mm -hmm. Women are involved in, you know, police brutality Mm -hmm. and prison brutality and, you know, position to power abuses as well. But the vast majority are men. You're just giving these prison guards, these police officers, these men in position of power the green light they have always wanted to put themselves above others because in the vast majority of their situations in life prior to that, they were not in a position where they Mm -hmm. were above others. These were not the top of the class. These were not the people that were super popular in high school. These were not the people that you would want, you know, running your football team running your company or running your household these were losers vast majority again but Mm. uh, let me just i mean be very clear about what's in your average american police force it's not you know not in my opinion a bunch of winners yeah i i don't you know i i had i had police in my family my my dad's my dad's father was a police officer and and my uncle was a was assistant director of correction in new york state i i can see i can see to be a police officer I will say this, is a very difficult job. It might be one of the most difficult jobs that anybody could undertake. I can say from from some experience and from some observation, a lot of the time, police come into very difficult situations, one of which is one of the most dangerous situations police officers can come into is domestic abuse, where you arrive at the house and, you, you you don't actually know what's really going on and you have to try to get a grip on it. 
And I think there are a lot of, I think, you know, I've known some really good police officers, the people who are really, really good people. I think that, I think that certainly training needs to be addressed, certainly. I think that what needs to be addressed also is basically how you select the police officers, where do they come from, what kind of you know, vetting you do of a person before they, they get on the force. I think that's important. And I think, too, that there are a lot of problems with brutality in the police department. But if that be so, then a lot of, a lot of the fault or the blame also has to do with society. Because if, if those things are all happening, then society, all of us, need to be much more aggressive in trying to get that stopped. But, you know, a lot of what we our attitudes are basically is the police are there, they keep, they keep the law, so to speak. They keep things from getting out of control. We don't really want to know about what they do. As long as, you know, it doesn't bother me and I can walk around and nobody's going to jump me or beat me or shoot me, that's all I want to know. There was a guy who was a, a L.A. cop whose name was Joe Wambaugh, and he wrote a book called The New Centurions. And it was all about these two men who were police officers in L.A., and, and, and they, were, they ride around in the car and all the stuff that they encounter. I think one of the things that could be done, though, and I've said this repeatedly, is I think you need to have Presuming that people's presuming that people's intentions are are good and fair, you need to have a lot more community policing. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think that's one of the things you need. No, I agree. Um, but I, I don't really necessarily believe it's like a, a a violence in the community type problem or a violence in society type problem mm-hmm. because you don't see this level of violence among other jobs with physicality, right? Your mm-hmm. average gym teacher isn't getting physical mm-hmm. with all the kids, even though they're in a position of physical yeah. power. Your average karate instructor isn't beating the crap out of people yeah. because they're in a position of physical power. This is a problem with the police. Yeah. This is a problem with cops wielding their physical power inappropriately. Yeah. There are plenty of people that have jobs of physical power over people that that they do not wield as inappropriately as the police. Yeah, so well, I think, you know, it's easy to say it's a societal problem with violence, but eh, the violence is a lot more acute where the cops are concerned. Well, um, it, it's societal It's societal in the sense that there's a tolerance of what's going on. That's the problem. You see, the problem is when you have George Floyd or you have Eric Garner, you have all these cases, or, or, or Oscar Grant, right. that... There doesn't seem to be any impetus to make the changes that need to be done in law enforcement because it doesn't involve people personally. So they can see a person of color be attacked or beaten or whatever it is, and inherently you feel badly about that because the person, the response was completely out of whack. But then it sort of fades out a bit, and then you go back to doing what you're doing. Right. I think one of the one of the sad things about that is that we've had so many cases like this, but we need to become more involved as 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 a, as a societal group, everybody working together to to make change 
in that area. Well, and we hate to end your Thanksgiving on such a, you know, such a morose note here. I, I hate, yeah, I hate to end the t- Thanksgiving dinner uh, on, on such a sad note. But a call to action is always kind of a way to be grateful that we can even talk on the radio and have these conversations. So if nothing else, I'm thankful for the professor and thankful that we can have these conversations and thankful to KUNV. So we hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving and we hope you tune in next week. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Lana. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to our show. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us at Wethel1, that's W-E-T-H-E-L-1, at nevada.unlv.edu. Or to contact Professor Charles Stanton, contact him at C-H-A-R-L-E-S, that's Charles.Stanton, S-T-A-N-T-O-N, at unlv.edu. See you, See you next, next time. time.